Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. It's Amit Goyal. First off, I'd like to take this moment to congratulate you. Of all of the things you could be doing right now, you're choosing to spend your time to listen to this incredible case just to learn and enjoy discussing cardiology, be a better doctor, and do the best you can for your patients. So pat yourself on the back for being a true cardio nerd. This phenomenal case highlighting the issues involved with pulmonary hypertension and pregnancy is brought to you through a multi-institutional collaboration in a true cardio nerd style. I'd like to thank Drs. Kashani Gajar and Mitha Nayak, fellows at Allegheny General Hospital, for bringing us this illustrative case in all of the phenomenal teaching points. A very special thanks to Cardio-OB Master Dr. Nandita Scott from Massachusetts General Hospital in providing the eCPR. And of course, Dr. Danny Kruziat, former fellow from MGH and now faculty at University of South Florida for providing a wonderful introduction to Dr. Scott. To learn more about the cardio-obstetric considerations in managing patients with pulmonary hypertension, definitely check out episode 124 with Dr. Candice Silversides. Friends, CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Remember to claim free CME credit using that link in the episode description and help others find us by rating and reviewing the show. Now, before we dive in and get nerdy, a message from Dr. Tommy Das, Program Director of the CardioNerds Academy. Hey, CardioNerds. My name is Tommy Das. I'm a cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic and the Program Director for the CardioNerds Academy Fellowship. I am so excited to announce that applications for the next class of CardioNerds Academy Fellows are now open. If you're a current internal medicine resident interested in the intersection between medical education, cardiovascular disease, and digital media, please consider applying. For more information about the fellowship, check out the CardioNerds website, where you'll find some of the stellar digital education products that our fellows have created. Applications are due October 15th. Please check out the description on this episode for a link to the application. In the meantime, stay nerdy, everyone. Hey, CardioNerds. Come along with us for a trip back to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so we can hang out with cardiology fellows from AGH Cardiology Fellowship Program, our friends, Dr. Kushani Gajar and Dr. Mitha Nayak. Guys, welcome back to the show. Would you mind introducing yourselves to the audience before we dive into a phenomenal case you guys have prepared for us? Of course, yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Kushani. I'm one of the second-year cardiology fellows at Allegheny General Hospital. I have an interest in advanced heart failure with a very niche interest and also the use of imaging for advanced heart failure. I'm so excited to be back on CardioNerds and not only talk about a great case, but as usual, to learn a lot from Amit and Dan in the process. Hi, everyone. I'm Mitha Nayak. I'm one of the first-year cardiology fellows at AGH. Thank you for welcoming me into the CardioNerds family. I'm so excited to be here. This is actually my first podcast. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you guys. Wow. Uh, Mitha, for, uh, I couldn't tell you'd be a first-timer. You sound like a podcasting natural. Thank you. You're very kind. <laughs> Welcome, here. And Kushani, you're a veteran, and I definitely could tell how highly skilled you are. We cannot wait to get ourselves deep into an amazing case of cardiology. So why don't you take us to your favorite place in Pittsburgh, set the scene, and then start with an amazing case that you've prepared. 
Hey, Dad, way ahead of you. So for everyone listening to this podcast, it's finally getting warmer in Pittsburgh. Meeta and I, I heard on a picnic bench in the Three Rivers Trail on a warm sunny day. We were just reminiscing about the most fascinating and fulfilling case we've seen here at AGH. And coincidentally, we agreed on the same patient that we took care of at different points of time in her trajectory. Yeah, this story starts in the office, but gets pretty wild. Um, why don't you start, Kushani, since you saw her in the office? Hey, thanks, Meeta. So the most interesting parts of her story all happened when she met Meeta. But I'm going to set the stage because I had met her in the office first and know where the story originally began. So our patient is a 31-year-old lady with a history of CML treated with tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Unfortunately, she developed dyspnea with strenuous exertion on her TKI therapy and hence an echocardiogram was done for her. Her echocardiogram revealed estimated pulmonary artery systolic pressure of 80 mmHg but preserved LV function and no other obvious congenital heart defects. Based on this echo, she was referred to an advanced heart failure clinic, which is where I met her. Yeah, aren't tyrosine kinase inhibitors known to cause pulmonary hypertension? You're so smart, Meeta. Yeah, absolutely they are. So let's begin with the basics here and start by asking what is pulmonary hypertension and how do we define it? So in 2018, with the Sixth World Symposium, the definition of pulmonary hypertension changed. It was proposed to define pH as mean pulmonary artery pressure greater than 20 mmHg. You'll notice that I said mean PA pressure, not pulmonary artery systolic pressure, which is what we get on an echocardiogram. So doing a right heart catheterization is absolutely essential in the diagnosis of pH. Once we establish that pH exists, we classify it into groups. There are five major groups. The first group is called pulmonary arterial hypertension, which includes idiopathic pH, heritable pH, as well as that mediated by drugs and toxins. There's a group called 1 prime, which is pulmonary veno-occlusive disease. Group 2, which is pH caused by left heart disease. Group 3, which is pH caused by lung disease or hypoxia. Group 4, which is chronic thromboembolic pH. And group 5, which is sort of this dumping category of pH with unclear or multifactorial mechanisms. Wow, that's such an extensive classification. What kind of workup did you do for her? So we began with the right heart cat to establish the diagnosis of pH, which revealed severely elevated mean PA pressure of 66 mmHg, a pulmonary vascular resistance of 14 wood units, normal wedge and normal cardiac index. We also did a complete pH workup to rule out the other categories of disease. So she underwent a ventilation perfusion scan and a CT angiogram of the chest, which were unrevealing for acute or chronic pulmonary embolisms, pulmonary function tests, which did not show any pulmonary pathology. We also did a cardiac MRI to rule out undiagnosed congenital heart disease, and it demonstrated RV hypertrophy and pulmonary artery dilatation, but no other congenital abnormalities. This workup confirmed our initial suspicion that she had group 1 PAH in the setting of her TKI or tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy. Wow, that's such an extensive workup. So, ultimately what therapies did you start for her? We began with the right heart catheterization to establish the diagnosis of PAH which revealed severely elevated mean PA pressure of 66 mmHg, pulmonary vascular resistance of 14 wood units, normal wedge and normal cardiac index. We also did vasoreactivity testing which was negative for her. In addition to this, we did a complete pH workup. 
she underwent a ventilation perfusion scan and a CT angiogram of the chest, which were unrevealing for acute or chronic pulmonary embolism. Pulmonary function tests did not show any pulmonary pathology. We also did a cardiac MRI to rule out any undiagnosed congenital heart disease. And while it demonstrated RV hypertrophy and pulmonary artery dilatation, it did not show any congenital abnormalities. This workup confirmed our initial suspicion that she had group 1 PAH in the setting of her TKI therapy. Wow, that is such an extensive workup. So based on all of this, what therapies did you start for her? So as you already know, Mita, there's three major categories of medicines used for PAH, which are prostacyclin analogs, endothelin receptor antagonists, and phosphodiesterase inhibitors. The goal with all of these therapies is to prevent vasoconstriction and facilitate vasodilatation. We factor in the patient's symptoms, exercise capacity, and hemodynamics for this. For our patient, putting all of this information together, we decided to start Macitentan, which is an endothelin receptor antagonist, and Tadalafil, which is a PDE5 or phosphodiesterase inhibitor 5 inhibitor. If I remember correctly, doesn't Macitentan and endothelin receptor antagonists in general, don't they require a negative pregnancy test? I mean, isn't it a known pregnancy category X drug? Yes, absolutely. It does require a negative pregnancy test. Also, mortality is very high in pregnancy for PAH patients, and so we recommend against pregnancy anyway. We usually advocate for two methods of birth control. Actually, we couldn't start these therapies for her because we lost her to follow-up while we were waiting for the negative pregnancy test. We didn't see or hear from her for the next seven and a half months, but you were at the other end of those months, weren't you? Why don't you tell us how you met her for the first time? Yeah, so the rest of the story is that we lost this patient. We kept trying to reach out to her so as to let her know that we need a negative pregnancy test to start the Masitentan, but in vain. So the next time we hear about her is when we're contacted by her OBGYN and notified that she was in her third trimester of pregnancy and was having worsening shortness of breath. It was bad enough that she was referred to our tertiary care hospital for a direct admission. And this is where our case truly begins. That is such a plot twist to the story, isn't it? Walk us through it. What was it like when you went to admit her? So fortunately, she looked relatively stable. Um, She told me she was having worsening shortness of breath with her activities of daily living. And as of a few weeks prior to presentation, had been unable to walk a block or climb a flight of stairs without becoming dyspneic. She also endorsed swelling of her lower extremities that had been progressively worsening. I did do a complete review of systems, but aside from the dyspnea, she really had no other complaints. We already talked about most of her past medical history, but um, in addition to her CML and pulmonary hypertension, she also had a history of chronic thrombocytopenia with a baseline platelet count of around 100. This was attributed to some of her CML therapies. On exam, her vitals were relatively stable. She was mildly tachycardic with a heart rate of 110, a blood pressure of 108 over 75 millimeters of mercury, And she was breathing about 20 times a minute while maintaining saturations on room air. She was neurologically intact and alert to time, place, and person. On cardiac auscultation, she was tachycardic, but with a regular rhythm, had an accentuated pulmonic or P2 heart sound, and a two-on-six systolic murmur at the lower left sternal border. Her jugular venous pressure was also elevated at 13 centimeters of water with a positive hepatojugular reflux. Additionally, she also had some mild lower extremity edema. Hey, let's not forget the gravid uterus at 30 weeks of gestation. 
oh my gosh, how could I? But I have to say, the one thing that was going through my mind as I was processing all of this information is that it's actually quite difficult to discern normal and abnormal signs and symptoms during pregnancy, don't you think? Oh, I completely agree. I would have felt the same way. So walk me through how you teased out what was normal and what was abnormal here. Well, normal cardiopulmonary signs and symptoms can include occasional palpitations, a mildly elevated heart rate, a third heart sound, or a mild systolic murmur. You can also have shortness of breath with exertion. But abnormal would be more along the lines of a heart rate of greater than 100 beats per minute, a fourth heart sound, a diastolic murmur, or any sort of chest pain. The evidence of pulmonary edema or pleural effusions, orthopnea, uh, and marked shortness of breath would also be considered as abnormal. I think we can safely say that her tachycardia, peripheral edema, and out-of-proportion dyspnea would be abnormal here. Exactly. So what did you do next? So next we got a chest x-ray, an ECG, as well as some basic blood work. The chest x-ray showed that she had clear lungs with no evidence of an effusion. Her pulmonary artery looked large, consistent with her diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. The ECG showed evidence of sinus tachycardia, right axis deviation, as well as right ventricular hypertrophy. There were also some nonspecific STT wave changes, as well as possible left atrial enlargement. I had hoped that getting some blood work would help us tease out a diagnosis, but the only results of significance were a platelet count of 66 and a pro-BNP of 792. Hey, Mita, thanks for the great history and physical exam. I know we're already suspicious about what this could be based on her past medical history, but to avoid anchoring, let's run through the possible differentials here. So this could be physiologic dyspnea of pregnancy, the manifestation of an occult cardiac lesion such as valvular or congenital heart disease. It could be an atrial septal defect causing significant shunting in the setting of pregnancy-associated volume overload. It could be a pulmonary embolism. Or, of course, it could be the worsening of her known pulmonary arterial hypertension. If I had to guess, I think the next step would be an echocardiogram. You're absolutely right. By this point, we had consulted advanced heart failure and a transthoracic echocardiogram had been completed, which revealed a normal LV function with an LVEF of 60 to 64%, RV dilatation with a basal diameter of 5.6 centimeters and moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation. She also had an estimated systolic pulmonary artery pressure of 130 millimeters of mercury. Holy moly. So wait, if her systemic systolic blood pressure when you examined her was in the hundreds, and if by the echo, the estimated systolic pulmonary artery pressure is 130, that effectively means that her PA pressure is higher than her systemic pressure. Exactly. And also, if the normal PA systolic pressure is less than 35 mmHg, hers is four times the upper limit of normal. Yeah, that poor RV looked like it was struggling. So next, we did a right heart cath. And as you can imagine, it was quite the undertaking. We covered her abdomen with lead and took all precautions and used as little fluoroscopy as we could. It was worth it because the pressures we got on the right heart cath were just as spectacular. Kushani, you're still reeling from the results. <laughs> Do you want to take us through them? Reeling from them is correct, my friend. Not only have I never seen numbers like these, but I wouldn't even have thought them physiologically possible. And yet, here they were, very real. So on her right heart catheterization, her mean PA pressure was 70 mmHg. Her PA systolic pressure was 123. PA diastolic pressure was 47. Her pulmonary vascular resistance was 14 woods units. Her wedge was normal at 2 and her cardiac index was 2.2. 2. 
we did do an inhaled nitric oxide challenge in the lab itself, with which the mean PA pressure went from 77 to 71. Her PVR went from 15 to 9.5. The wedge continued to remain normal, but her cardiac index improved from 2.2 to 4. We left the PA catheter in place because we quickly realized we would need to initiate not just PAH therapies, but also possibly inotropic and vasopressor support. So I just want to express the emotions I'm having right now, guys. I'm feeling, one, frightened, and two, curious, right? I'm feeling, one, frightened because this is such a dire situation, right? This this degree of pulmonary hypertension in the context of pregnancy, right? Thinking about all of the hemodynamic changes that go along with pregnancy, the increase in blood volume, the increase in cardiac output, the drop in SVR. In the context of pulmonary hypertension, there's a substantial morbidity and mortality. And in some series as, as high, and I'm learning this from the CardioB series, a quarter to a third mortality in patients in this context. And no two patients are alike. So let's personalize that a little bit, right? The things that contribute to greater mortality, and again, we're talking about mortality, not just the morbidity, but the, the factors that contribute to greater mortality are one, uh, higher pulmonary pressures, right? So the more severe the pulmonary hypertension, the more severe the consequences. And, you know, the numbers they throw around are maybe in RVSP, PASP, above 50, above 70, depending on which study you look at. And she is more than double that, right? Number two, the variability in mortality varies according to the type of pulmonary hypertension. And the greatest risk is seen with group one pulmonary hypertension compared to the other causes, right? So our patient has one, severely elevated pressures, and two, she has group one pulmonary hypertension. And in addition to that, she has RV dysfunction, which also pretends a worse uh, mortality. So she is, even at baseline, even outside of the context of pregnancy, she's in a very high risk situation. And, and she hasn't been able to avail herself to your incredible care as an outpatient because she was lost to follow-up. But in addition to that, now she's pregnant. So this is why I'm frightened. I'm frightened for her life. I'm frightened for her baby's life. And this is so serious that had she presented earlier in pregnancy, you may even have offered the possibility of terminating pregnancy to save her life. So that's that's my first emotion. I'm frightened. The second emotion is I'm very curious and I'm at the edge of my seat because right now it's all hands on deck, right? I mean, we're, we want to save her life. We want to save the baby's life. We need to treat the pulmonary hypertension. We need a multidisciplinary group capable in all of the variety of the facets that are involved here, right? The pulmonary hypertension, advanced heart failure, maternal fetal medicine, the NICU team needs to be aware. And we need to steward her through not just this last trimester, but very carefully through labor and delivery. And the the important thing that comes up for us over and over again, whatever aspect of cardio OB we're talking about, whether it's hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, pregnancy and irritopathy, pregnancy and heart failure, namely peripartum cardiomyopathy, and also with pulmonary hypertension, the postpartum period is a time of great risk. And that's actually when you may you may see a lot of the mortality present. And so, so we need to not only get her through this last trimester, we need to get her through labor and delivery, take care of her baby, and get her through those initial few weeks at the fourth trimester, the postpartum period. Um, so again, I am incredibly frightened. I'm glad that she's in such incredible hands with a multidisciplinary team, but I'm also very curious. So what did you guys do? 
Hey, Amit, thank you so much for bringing all of those things. And I know as doctors, we are only supposed to be logical and rational at all points of times. But I agree with you. There are real emotions involved here and there's almost a visceral fear about how to go about this. And um, there's not only her own life at stake, but also a baby's life at stake here. And so this was something that we took very, very seriously. And you're very correct. We are already talking about a high morbidity and mortality. And to your point, specifically mortality in patients with PH who become pregnant, but her numbers by themselves are just spectacular. To talk about a PA pressure, which is higher than systemic pressure, even if she was not pregnant would have been scary, but add pregnancy to that mix and it becomes so much more scarier. And so that that was the entire point of her being transferred to our tertiary care transplant center, which also has mechanical circulatory support available, is to have this multidisciplinary approach. And we brought together a team of obstetrics, gynecology, maternal fetal medicine, anesthesia, critical care and advanced heart failure from the get-go. As soon as we knew what it was that we were dealing with, all of these teams were already involved. Wow, Kushani, that transfer to the tertiary care center with that multidisciplinary team is just absolutely essential. And just to highlight and reemphasize why this is such a frightening situation for all the things that Amit just said, but also to recognize that with pulmonary hypertension as severe as this and potential RV failure, there is not a lot of wiggle room to move. You know, so when you have patients with, let's say, let's say left ventricular failure, sometimes you have you know opportunities to apply therapies and see if they'll work. And you may have a little bit more wiggle room to see if the patient's going to respond to these therapies. But when it comes to RV failure, pulmonary hypertension in general, not even adding on pregnancy, sometimes just small changes in preload on the RV or too much preload on the RV can have drastic and immediate consequences that get you very deep in the woods and difficult to get out of a, almost a death spiral of RV failure. And so adding that as a layer of pregnancy, just to emphasize that where there's, you know, we're, we're going to get to a point where there's going to be major shifts in intravascular volume that are going to occur. You really need to be set up with people that have the expertise to predict what could happen next and avoid those pitfalls that could come along. So having that multidisciplinary team is just absolutely essential for the management of this particular patient. So I'm really glad you brought her over and meet the What happened next when the patient arrived? What was the team thinking about and what was the team doing to prepare this patient to get her on the right track? Thank you, Dan. Um, Yeah, you're absolutely right. We were on the edge of our seat, fingers and toes crossed, you know, whatever metaphor you really want to use in this situation. She was first started on inhaled nitric oxide and low-dose troprostanil, which is a parenteral prostacycline. And despite this, her PA pressures were elevated at 135 over 54 millimeters of mercury with a mean of 87. So this was above systemic pressures around 100 over 70 millimeters of mercury with a cardiac index of about 2. Um, as a result of this, we also added Tadalafil to her treatment regimen. And given her low cardiac index, we started Dibutamine to provide RV support and added vasopressin to allow for her systemic pressures to be higher than her pulmonary pressures. Over the next few days, both vasopressin and Tadalafil were up-titrated and the troprostanil was also optimized. Finally, after five grueling days, we achieved equalization of pulmonary and systemic pressures. 
And Dan, absolutely agree to your point is that when you have such high pulmonary artery pressures, not only do you have to think about the pH, but absolutely about the RV. And I think to Meeta's point, that's where the dobutamine and the vasopressin comes into the picture because it's not just the pH pressures that you want to bring down, but how do we help support this RV that is struggling with this much afterload? Um, and Meeta, don't forget about the baby. While we're uprighting all of these presses, how is it affecting the baby? Thank you for the gentle reminder, Kushani. Uh, the fetal heart rate was continuously monitored while the patient was on inotropes and vasopressors and thankfully showed no signs of compromise. She was initiated on antenatal betamethasone and at 30 weeks and three days, magnesium sulfate was added for fetal neuroprotection. To complicate an already complex situation, do you remember how I told you that her platelets were low on admission? Well, she had a worsening of her baseline thrombocytopenia and platelets we're going as low as 19,000. Of course, we asked our hematology colleagues to become involved at this point. Thankfully, her LFTs were normal, as was her peripheral smear, because, of course, the first fear is always HELP syndrome in pregnancy. Besides, clinically, she was actually doing very well outside of being understandably very anxious about her own health and the health of her baby. Ultimately, her workup was negative for any clear cause of thrombocytopenia, and it was attributed to a combination of pH-induced thrombotic microangiopathy, pregnancy, and a history of CML. What was unfortunate is that with her platelet count being that low, it effectively rendered cesarean section and epidural anesthesia unfeasible. From what I remember, there were multidisciplinary meetings every day with all of the teams that we just talked about. And in fact, even CT surgery was on standby in case she decompensated. We really rallied the troops with this patient. The reason is because pH during pregnancy is associated with such a high maternal mortality. However, as we are finding out that because of the newer PAH therapies that are now available, we actually have better survival in the modern era with pH in pregnancy. However, this is still something to be taken very, very seriously. What's also important to note, as we've already spoken about, and as Dan and Amit, you've talked about, is that the RV is often unable to handle the volume shifts and hemodynamic changes that occur during pregnancy, labor, and delivery. Maternal mortality is highest in the last trimester of pregnancy and in the first months after delivery. Compared to pregnant women without heart disease, those with pH are at a higher risk of adverse cardiac events, most frequently heart failure and arrhythmias, preeclampsia, eclampsia, preterm delivery, cesarean delivery, and fetal demise. It's so risky that the consensus guidelines at this time actually recommend against pregnancy in women with pH. Additionally, for our patient in particular, we had to do some gymnastics around planning her delivery, given that her platelets were as low as Meeta pointed out. Cesarean section is effectively prohibited with platelets these low, and vaginal delivery can cause a vagal response and increase preload. So Meeta, how did we go about that? So we had planned for a spontaneous vaginal delivery where we would avoid maternal bearing down efforts in order to evade that vagal response you were talking about. IV fentanyl was going to be used in order to provide analgesia, and our patient also decided that she would elect to have an etonorgestrel intrauterine device implanted at the time of delivery. Additionally, we had our cardiothoracic surgeons on standby at all times should the patient decompensate hemodynamically and require the placement of venoarterial ECMO. Thankfully, everything worked out in our favor. At 32 weeks of gestation, the patient had preterm premature rupture of membranes and a spontaneous vaginal delivery with no maternal or fetal complications. This story makes me so happy every time I hear it. 
I relived the whole thing and can almost feel the stress and anxiety of both the patient as well as the providers. It's stories like these that I tap into on a rainy day and find renewed purpose and zeal for this amazing field that medicine can be. I know, there was such a happy ending to it. Post-delivery, all her pressors were slowly weaned. She was ultimately discharged on terprostanol, ambrosentan, and digoxin, in addition to her tadalafil. And even her platelets normalized postpartum. Mom and baby were discharged home in a stable condition. What a wonderful outcome, Meeta. I can also tell everyone else listening to the podcast that we actually saw her in the clinic a month later, and both mom and baby were doing really well at that time. Wow, guys, this is... Everything about this is so incredible. Again, I started off feeling intrigued. I was interested in what you had to say because of uh, such severe pulmonary hypertension. You you got me really scared and frightened as this patient showed up to your ICU. I was curious throughout it all, you know, at the edge of my seat, how are you going to manage her and take care of her and her baby over the course of her third trimester, labor and delivery and afterwards? But I'm ending with, and I'll reiterate the words you used, Kashani, I'm ending it with a feeling of purpose and zeal for cardiology. Congratulations for taking such incredible care of your patient, her baby, getting together this incredible team to take care of her and with a, such a happy ending after it all. So thank you so much for all the teaching that you gave us this uh, this episode. Amazing. Hey, Amit. Thank you so much. Actually, this particular patient story is somewhat a part of AGH legend at this point, partly for all the reasons that we've already spoken about is that yes, Cardiology and medicine are supposed to be logical and rational, but there's also the humanity of the field and the emotion of the field. And I think this story in particular sort of played into all of those things and everyone was so emotional about it and everyone was so deeply invested in making sure that it did have a happy ending. And it's something that we were all extremely excited about. It was definitely one of those cases that was just so fulfilling at the end of it, where you felt proud to be doing what you do and you felt proud to be part of that team and part of her journey. Yeah, Mita and Kushami, I I can't I cannot even echo Ahmed's words, but for him to say purpose and zeal, I think that that is a cardiac first in terms of compliments. I completely agree with everything he said and how we went from fear to excitement and elation for your patient. And, you know, you made us feel empowered to approach a patient as complicated as this, obviously recognizing that a multidisciplinary team is just essential. So guys, thank you so much for joining us on this crazy Sunday and telling us this really important case and just highlighting so many important aspects of this patient's care. Hi, everyone. It's Danny Kruciak. You might remember me from episode 111 in our cardioobstetric series, Normal Pregnancy Physiology with Dr. Garima Sharma. Today, I am delighted to introduce our expert for this case, Dr. Nandita Scott. Dr. Scott is the co-director of the Women's Heart Health Program and the director of the Cardiovascular Disease and Pregnancy Service at Massachusetts General Hospital. I had the privilege of working with her during my cardiology fellowship training, and that's when I credit her for introducing me to the wonderful world of cardio B. I can't say enough about Dr. Scott's passion and advocacy for the patients in her care, which I had the privilege to witness firsthand. She's exactly the kind of doctor you want at your bedside. She enriches the education of all those lucky enough to train and work alongside her, and I'm grateful to continue to call her a mentor, colleague, and a friend. I hope you enjoy this wonderful case that Dr. Scott will undoubtedly color with her extraordinary insight and clinical expertise. 
Thank you so much, Duchess Gudger and Nayak. That case was absolutely phenomenal. And I was also at the edge of my seat waiting to see the outcome of her case. My name is Nandita Scott. I am a cardiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. I co-direct the Corrigan Women's Heart Health Program, as well as our cardiovascular disease and pregnancy program. Thanks again for allowing me to listen and add to this amazing case. I will make note that Dr. Silversides did a beautiful Cardio Nerds podcast in May on pulmonary hypertension and pregnancy. So I won't specifically speak to that, but instead speak to the other very important key points that this case brings to our attention. Preconception counseling is a key component to this case. And in cardiology, it's something that many of us are not comfortable with. We did not go into obstetrics and gynecology. We went into cardiology for a reason. And therefore, we're just not comfortable dealing with discussion of pregnancy at all. One thing I always encourage our fellows to do is to ask every single woman of reproductive age, every time they see them, the one key question. So the one key question is, would you like to get pregnant in the next year? And whether you have a simple patient who happens to be on an ACE inhibitor for hypertension or a more complicated patient with congenital heart disease, pulmonary hypertension, or cardiomyopathy, we really need to consider whether this patient is on any teratogenic medications and if they need to be adjusted preconception. If they are adjusted, do they need to be monitored for some time to ensure there's no deterioration in clinical status? And also, we need to counsel each woman on their risk of pregnancy, as some patients will be at prohibitive risk and need to understand that before proceeding. I'm very, very impressed that your team considered the risks of pregnancy and counseled this patient appropriately. But we all know that despite our best intentions and counseling, women may still show up in our clinic pregnant. The two risk stratification schemes that I use for preconception counseling are the CARPRAG two scores developed again by Dr. Silversides and her team in Canada, as well as the modified WHO criteria. The Sahara risk score is also available, but more applicable to patients with congenital heart disease. The CARPRAG two risk score takes several variables and scores them and then sums them to provide an estimate of maternal cardiovascular risk. Most events in the study were heart failure and arrhythmias, though there were a few maternal deaths. Variables include prior cardiac events or arrhythmias, baseline NYHA status, just the mere presence of a mechanical valve, ventricular dysfunction, which is an EF in their study of less than 55%, high-risk left-sided valve disease, which is mitral valve area less than 2 centimeters squared, and aortic valve area less than 1.5 centimeters squared, or moderate to severe mitral regurgitation. Pulmonary hypertension relevant to this case was considered a variable if the RVSP was over 49 millimeters of mercury. Other important variables include high-risk aortopathy, no prior cardiac intervention, or late pregnancy assessment, which is arriving in pregnancy after 20 weeks. The other useful classification scheme is the modified WHO criteria, which also estimates maternal morbidity and mortality and also gives recommendations on whether care should be local or in expert center and how frequent the care should be. For our patients, her pulmonary artery hypertension puts her in a WHO class 4 category, which is a severe risk of maternal morbidity and mortality, and in this situation, termination should be considered if pregnancy occurs. Other conditions that are in this category include severe systemic ventricular dysfunction with an EF less than 30%, prior peripartum cardiomyopathy with residual left ventricular systolic dysfunction, severe symptomatic mitral or aortic stenosis, Marfan's with an aorta greater than 45 millimeters, and aortic dilatation greater than 50 millimeters in those with a bicuspid valve, as well as native severe coarctation. Once you've asked the one key question and reviewed pregnancy risk with the mom and she chooses not to get pregnant, it does behoove us as cardiologists to ensure that there's a plan for adequate birth control, which in most situations is more than just the barrier method, which is very highly user-dependent. 
And as mentioned, this conversation needs to occur at every single visit where you see a woman of reproductive age. The next point I wanted to emphasize was the patient's physical exam. You beautifully described this patient's physical exam as well as the normal cardiovascular physiological changes that occur during pregnancy, which includes an increase in plasma volume and heart rate, thus cardiac output, a fall in systemic vascular resistance. Mild tachycardia or mild elevation in heart rates is noticed during pregnancy, but generally should remain less than 100. There's also a decrease in blood pressure that rises towards normal near term. As a result of these normal physiological changes, there are changes in the cardiovascular physical exam. So we do hear murmurs. So we hear mostly flow murmurs across the valves, and you may even hear murmurs in the breast tissue. An S3 is normal, but an S4 is not. A diastolic murmur is also not normal. Due to the rise in plasma volume, JVP might actually be more prominent, but in the normal pregnant woman, the level should not rise because of the fall in the pulmonary vascular resistance. As we know in this situation, she is not able to reduce her pulmonary vascular resistance due to her pulmonary arterial hypertension. Now, the echocardiogram in pregnancy reflects cardiac remodeling secondary to these physiological changes, and that includes an increase in chamber size, though generally should remain within the normal range, increased flow across the valves, a small pericardial fusion is present in about 20% of healthy pregnant women. LV mass increases during pregnancy, but it is an eccentric hypertrophy, not a concentric hypertrophy. Therefore, LV wall thickness should not increase. And in terms of diastolic function, the E to E prime, so the, the load-independent indices, should not change and are still considered reliable when evaluating a pregnant patient. The team also measured brain natriuretic peptide in this patient. We know that the natriuretic peptides, specifically BNP and NT pro-BNP, are released in response to myocyte stretch. And you would expect that because of the increased plasma volume in pregnancy and the chamber dilatation I just expressed, you would think that the natriuretic peptides would increase. However, studies of these peptides in healthy pregnancy show that despite significant hemodynamic changes with pregnancy and normative chamber dilatation, BNP actually remains stable throughout the trimesters. The median concentration may go up compared to the non-pregnant state, though should generally remain in the normal range. Therefore, they retain a very high negative predictive value to exclude heart failure in our pregnant populations. As an aside, many of you who have been pregnant or know someone who's been pregnant know that pregnancy actually does mimic heart failure with edema, orthopnea, dyspnea. So the BNP can be actually quite useful in these situations. The positive predictive value of natriuretic peptides is lower than the negative predictive value. In one study by Bayama and colleagues where they looked at 773 asymptomatic healthy pregnant women where BNP was measured late pregnancy, early postpartum, and one month postpartum, 6.1% of women had BNP levels exceeding 100 picograms per mils with normal LV function. So while a negative value or a low value can provide reassurance with respect to the absence of cardiovascular decompensation, significant elevations do not necessarily mean that there's clinically evident dysfunction. As a side note, several studies have shown that peptides are higher in women with preeclampsia compared to normotensive women. And another useful use of the natriuretic peptides are prognostically in peripartum cardiomyopathy, where lower natriuretic peptide levels were more likely to have LV recovery at six months compared to women with higher levels. Lastly, in the congenital heart disease population, higher natriuretic peptide values are noted in women with congenital heart disease than women with structurally normal hearts, but they still retain their high negative predictive value, which is almost 100% for BNP and NT pro-BNP. 
So in sum, when using brain natriuretic peptides in routine healthy pregnancies, there's probably no use for it. But you can have a low threshold to measure it with symptoms supportive of heart failure and definitely use it for prognostication for women with peripartum cardiomyopathy. And lastly, in our women with structural heart disease, I have found it actually quite useful to measure throughout pregnancy and then watch for any change in the values. The last point I wanted to discover and not the least point is multidisciplinary care. This case highlights the beauty of cardioobstetrics and shows that this really is a team sport. In this cardioobstetrics field, we have very little randomized data to support decision-making. So bringing experts together is critical to optimize patient outcomes. Each part of the team approaches the patient and her fetus from a unique vantage point. So it's therefore very, very important to discuss each patient in a multidisciplinary fashion. The teamwork exhibited in this case was really unbelievable and likely contributed to a great outcome. So kudos again. Mode of delivery has been an issue where I think we can improve education across the board. Despite the optics of an organized delivery in an operating room with many people in the room, vaginal delivery is actually the optimal mode of delivery for the majority of women. Cesarean section increases the risk of maternal infection, greater hemodynamic shifts and risk of blood loss, risk of surgical injury, and greater risk for thrombotic events. So there's very, very, very few, if no situations, where I advise our MFM team that we need to do a C-section. There's absolutely no absolute contraindications to vaginal delivery but it can be considered in a few unique situations, such as preterm labor in the presence of full oral anticoagulation as the baby brain is also anticoagulated in the presence of warfarin, patients with Marfans with an aorta over 4.5 centimeters, patients with acute or chronic aortic dissection, and of course, those with intractable heart failure where you just need to get the baby out to stabilize the mom. Again, this team came together beautifully to recommend a vaginal delivery in this patient, and she did well, as you know. If you're in a situation where you don't have nearby cardio-obstetric expertise, reach out to a nearby center. From what I know of everybody in this field, they're passionate about it and passionate also about improving maternal care in our country. So with that, I thank you very much for this opportunity to discuss this amazing case and highlight some key points. This case really demonstrates how meaningful our work is in cardiology and, of course, the great impact that cardio-obstetrics have. So again, congratulations and thanks again. (laughs) 